you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn and in 2011, Podrigo Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And we love it. We're staying on Zoom for now and you can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us at our website, 10by9.com. And while we miss our lovely live audiences, we're also loving our new international audiences, the storytellers and viewers joining us from across Britain and Ireland, as well as North America and Europe, and even Iran. If you haven't yet, why not join us wherever you are in the world? Now, there are three stories in this podcast, recorded at two events. The first story is from first-timer Killian Faith Kelly. He told this story on August 26th, when the theme was Home from Home. 16th of February, crucially Sunday, predictably hungover. Disastrously, 12.55pm, and still in bed. Last entry is 2.15. This will be tight. My feet sneak up on my brain and swing themselves onto the floor before the brain gets a chance to stop them. Suddenly, and quite offensively, I'm up and fumbling around for my bag. I sense my body feels somewhat vindicated in causing this offence, given my best inconsiderate treatment of it over the past 24 hours. Fortunately, my room being the size of a generously proportioned matchbox, I'm able to find and fling into my bag everything I need and get out the door for just after one. It'll take an hour and 10 minutes, according to City Mapper, an hour and 15, according to the date my stomach's just set behind my back with the Greggs on the high street. Pastry in hand, and increasingly all over my t-shirt as well, I stumble past loud people and shiny people, and I'm sorry I don't have any change people, and under the ground and onto the train. I feel a bit weird about eating here. I still haven't quite figured out the etiquette on this. And most of the time, it's almost impossible to distinguish dirty looks from just looks in this city, more so underneath it, so they're no help at all. Once finished, I crumple up the paper bag and stuff it into my pocket. I take off my coat. I get off at Kennington to change. It smells like vomit. I reapply coat. I get on the thing going to High Barnet via bank. During all of this, the noise in my earphones, which is maybe music or maybe a podcast, but is mainly just noise, saves me from sharing this time and space with anyone else or with whatever thoughts my brain, my brain might put there if given the chance. It rarely is anymore. I see that other noises are providing this service for other people too. I switch my brain out of standby at each stop to read the sign on the platform and check how many more I'll have to read before Kendish Town. At one point, someone else starts eating. I look around to see how others react. Predictably, they don't. I study the eater. How long has he been here? Does he know the rules? Could he be knowingly breaking them? Is that the true sign of a native? How long does it take to become one of those? Do other people think I'm one? Someone asked me for directions the other day. I was able to give them which made me feel like, yes, I am, but almost certainly I'm not. The escalator at Kendish Town is particularly long and steep, or are they all as steep as each other? So definitely not a native then. Left side, as always, mystified, as always, by the people standing still on the right instead of walking up. Why would they want to spend any more time than necessary doing this, being here? Maybe they like it, or maybe they think the effort of walking up the escalator isn't worth the time it saves. I think that's probably it, but I'll never ask one of them to check. I walk past the two pubs beside each other and watch a group dither before going into the worst one, idiots. While observing, I forget and consequently miss the 88 bus, idiot. I check City Mapper, quicker to walk now, 25 minutes, but I'll do it in 20, I think. 
That'll get me there two minutes before it closes, I think. Is it definitely 2.15? It changes sometimes. When does it change? I decide not to check, because I don't know what I'll do if it turns out I'm not going to make it. I just decide that I will, and that's that. I join a crowd waiting at a set of lights to cross the road. None of them have pressed the button. Why does no one here ever press the button? They all assume someone else will. I don't do it. It would seem arrogant or passive-aggressive. I look across to the corresponding crowd on the other side, waiting to swap with us. I notice a woman slightly older than me, wearing brightly coloured gym gear and earphones, and crying, very obviously crying. It strikes me as strange that this is happening in public. Stranger still that, along with everyone else, I'm doing nothing about it. More strange than that, the absolute strangest thing of them all is that I know I won't do anything about it. I am absolutely certain of that. I think about what I would say to her if I was going to do something about it. Say if I was at home and she was the only other person on a country road. Or maybe even just if there was no one else at this crossing. I think in that circumstance, it would be more uncomfortable to do nothing than something. But there are people here, people who would see. So never for a moment does this thought leave the realm of my imagination to become anything practical that could inform any real life action. I notice that she's looking everywhere except eye level and realise it must be to avoid making eye contact with anyone and disrupting their day with the burden of her sadness. I think about how awful it would be if I accidentally made eye contact with her and then realise that actually we both just immediately look away from each other and pretend it didn't happen, so it wouldn't be that bad. The light goes green and I bolt to the front of the crowd. Walking makes me warm and the coat comes off again. I realise people must think I'm strange, charging around in a t-shirt on such a cold day, and then delight in remembering that I don't know any of them, so I don't care. I turn left onto the heath. It's all prams and dogs and smug couples pushing and pulling them. I must, look, I must look like an imposter to them without my own evidence of domestic settlement. They're all walking so slowly, showing off how little it means to them to be here and how little they feel compelled by anything other than a casual Sunday afternoon whim. It seems impossible to me that these people have work tomorrow morning too. I arrive with two minutes to spare. I fumble around for pound coins for the machine and scurry down the slimy steps into the roofless changing area. Six or seven others provide examples of the various stages of the process. Some are still dry, with faces that evidence the seriousness of their mental preparation, while others jitter around, bright-eyed and wet-haired, with towels and shaky hands, re-familiarising themselves with the intricacies of buttons and zippers and belts. A silent camaraderie prevails. One man, fully clothed, walks to the centre of the changing area, forcefully rings his trunks over the drain cover, and, once they've spluttered out their last watery breath, folds them into his bag and strides away. I half convince myself that'll be me in ten minutes. Once changed, my feet splat over puddled concrete, past the goading blackboard, water temperature 4.7 degrees Celsius, and onto the jetty. Beyond the floating perimeter, swans and ducks flaunt their comfort where I know I won't be finding any. Beyond them, the grey glass of the surface inhales and exhales against marshy banks that rise up to verdant hillside and noble trees, whose stillness seems to speak of their exceptional manners. Within the boundary, only the lilting rhythm of a singular figure's breaststroke reminds me, barely, that I share this space with others. I step to the edge, inhale and jump. What feels at the time like the worst 30 seconds of my life is followed immediately by what feels at the time like the best 30 seconds of my life. Immense fragility and powerlessness dominate the former and are then wrestled with and cast away in the latter. 
this struggle occupies my mind entirely and I relish the sim simple singularity of purpose. My body adjusts because my brain allows it to. They share a transformed mutual impression of each other that I'll hold on to for a week. Vulnerable to invincible in under a minute. I smile. I swim. Thanks so much, Killian. Killian has spent lockdown in Akadui, and that is as exotic as it sounds. Heading back to London soon, though. By the way, if you want to see our storytellers in action, then go to our YouTube channel. All our Zoom stories are there. And if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9, go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch. Next up is Karen Lane. Karen told this story from her home in Edinburgh in July when we teamed up with Belfast Pride. The theme was out. So, there we all were. Me, in floods of tears. Mum, unusual for her, letting Dad do all the talking. Dad, shouting, not talking. And the psychiatrist, well, she was the joker in the pack. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. Lesbianism sort of crept up on me unawares. When I was 13, the family moved to a different part of the country and I moved to an all-girls school halfway through the year. When the deputy head took me to my class, I thought she'd taken me into the wrong year. They all had tights on and I was wearing long white socks. And they all spoke posh and educated like the news on the telly. This was 1972, so the telly wasn't exactly very diverse in those days. They were all Panorama, and I was Coronation Street. I had no idea until then that I dressed and spoke differently. So my first outing was as an outsider, a rural northerner. Laura was the only one who was friendly to me, and I snuggled into her attention. She was affectionate, and I came from a family that didn't do all that touchy-feely kind of stuff, so I lapped it up. We continued to be friends for the next couple of years, and I honestly can't remember when I came out to myself. For me, it was a normal, natural progression of affectionate friendship, although I suppose sex in the fields did mark it out as something different. Being outed at school was much more dramatic. We didn't know the teachers were watching us. Miss Denton saw us at the back of the class one rainy lunchtime and called us to the headmistress. I vociferously protested all the way to the office, shouting loudly for anyone to hear how dare she suggest that there was something wrong with me. I had a 15-year-old confidence, maybe arrogance, in the knowledge that adults, especially teachers, were idiots. The headmistress wanted an explanation. She didn't get one. So on the Friday afternoon, she contacted my parents. That's when my arsy facade crumbled. It was the worst weekend of my life. Actually, second worst, but that's another story. I was terrified of what would happen when my parents found out. Denial was my shield. They'd been called to a meeting at the school on Monday and with no explanation. So I said I had no idea what the meeting was for. The one person I could have turned to for support was denied to me. In those days, a phone was a big red box on the corner, not an instant message machine. So I had no easy way to rendezvous with Laura. 
Anyway, my parents were watching me like a hawk. We pitched up on the Monday afternoon after school had finished for the meeting with the head's mistress, and she told my mum and dad that I'd been partaking in unnatural activities. Actually, I can't remember what she said because I was crying all the time. What I do remember is that my parents were angry and I was forbidden by everyone from seeing Laura in school and out. Next stop was the school doctor. She was useless. She was like a frightened rabbit and anyway, she was Yasmin's mum so there was no way I was gonna be taking her seriously. So then the shrink. But I guess we had to wait a bit for these doctor's appointments because life settled into some kind of new normal. Laura and I were banned from seeing one another, but all that meant was that we got cannier and more deceptive. Faced with this crisis, I guess we found our own way to deal with it. And then there was Miss Dickinson, the games mistress. I was useless at games, but Laura was a sports star, captain of the hockey team, fastest runner, brilliant at netball, blah, blah, blah. So when Miss Dickinson came up to me one lunchtime, I had no idea what was coming next. I know you're not on the hockey team, Karen, but if you want to come to hockey practice, I'll tell everyone that you are. Well, I wasn't going to miss out on that opportunity. But the day of the shrink finally arrived. So, as I said, there we all were. Me, floods of tears, mum letting dad do all the talking, dad shouting. I told Dr. Lindsay I would talk to her, but only on my own. I wouldn't say anything in front of my parents. So she sent them out into another room and it all just flooded out of me. I loved Laura. It wasn't just about sex. I loved her in so many ways. Just doing things together, silly things or unimportant things or fun things or quiet things, just snuggling up. It was all so normal and natural. After a while, mum and dad came back in and he was still cross. I guess looking back on it now, he was frightened. You see, he worked in a prison and so he knew homosexuality and to his mind, it was very ugly. But this is where the shrink became the joker in the pack, the trickster, the orchestrator of the unexpected turn of events. There's nothing wrong with your daughter, she told my dad. If she wants to be homosexual or heterosexual, then that's okay. There's plenty of happy homosexuals around and unhappy heterosexuals I could have pointed out. But I didn't need to. A person in authority had stood up to my dad and she was on my side. What I was feeling and doing was okay. I can't actually remember what I felt at the time, but whenever I've retold this story, and I've retold it many times, it was gobsmackingly good. My story is dedicated to two awesome women. Miss Dickinson, I didn't appreciate at the time how much you put your job on the line to stand up for what was right. And Dr. Lindsay, you listened and you agreed with me. You were on my side. Both of you gave me the confidence to be thereafter out. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much, Karen. How lovely to hear from you. Karen actually wrote a chapter of her PhD on 10 by 9, which was extremely flattering and also really insightful. 
And now the begging bit. As you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But like many people and organisations, we've taken a big hit these past few months as the work that subsidises what we do has dried up. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We are really thankful to everyone who has donated. And we're coming to our final story, but just to let you know that there's a little bonus snippet after this one. So keep listening. You might even want pen and paper handy. But okay, here's the third story. It comes from Karen Hetherington and was told at our Home From Home evening, which is part of the virtual Mela here in Belfast, which was a great honour for us. Here's Karen. My maternal and paternal grandparents lived in identical houses separated by three and a half miles of uninterrupted carriageway and a world of difference. Both families had relocated to their respective houses in the mid-50s and were the first tenants in the properties. To my father's family who relocated from rural Lisgolman, the outskirts of Belfast must have felt quite urban, while to my mother's family a move from a terrace in East Belfast would have made them feel like they were in the country. Both families, by all accounts, adjusted quickly to their new homes and when the right to buy scheme was introduced a few years later, they had availed of the opportunity to purchase them. My mother's family home was an extremely happy one, full of love, laughter and fond memories. I spent every weekend there as a child and as the youngest in the family by years and their only granddaughter, I was smothered with love and attention. I often sat wide-eyed with wonder as my grandmother told me stories of her youth and growing up during the war. My uncle, their youngest, was still residing there during my childhood. I loved to wake him every Saturday morning and get him to play the guitar for me before we ventured out for the day. I was seldom more content than when I was in that house. On the other side of the carriageway, things were not so rosy. My grandfather was a frail man in poor health who had been unable to work for some years. My grandmother was a highly skilled dressmaker who, frequently, who was frequently commissioned to produce exquisite wedding gowns and other luxury garments. Her clients bought her, brought her items from the Jaeger shop, of which she produced exact replicas before they returned for a full refund. They had lost a child in infancy a couple of years before my father, their youngest, was born. It was said by many that she had never been the same. My father remained unconvinced. He had never known her as she had been before and was of the opinion that she had always been a better, difficult woman, devoid of emotion. We visited them sparingly. My memories of her remain vague. She died when I was quite young, but I recall being extremely intimidated by her. When my grandfather died soon after and their house was left to my father, to whom my mother surprised, to, to, who to my mother's surprise was actually keen to live in it. And so in late 1987, we moved into a house that I could hardly bear to even visit. And there I remained for the rest of my childhood and beyond. I never felt at home there, a mere visitor only, and an unwelcome one at that. The first few years of our occupancy were plagued by disaster and misfortune, which culminated in the divorce of my parents and resulted in my father leaving, never to return. A few years later, my mother moved on and moved out and the house came to be in my possession. Meanwhile, on the other side of the carriageway, my beloved grandfather had passed away, my grandmother had moved into nursing care and my uncle, who briefly inherited their property, died suddenly just two years later and the house was sold out of our family altogether. I increasingly felt that I had got the wrong house. I detoured past the property whenever possible and relished even the briefest glimpse of it as I drove by. I completely gutted and refurbished my house in an effort to make it mine, but of course it never was, and the unwelcoming presence was ever tangible. By late 2005, 
I accepted that I was concocting never-ending reasons to stay away from it. And just two years, two days after Christmas that same year, I filled my car to capacity and deserted the place entirely. It lay vacant for a month or so before I put it into the hands of a letting agent who took care of things. I had nothing to do with it, only being notified of changes of tenancy. But no one stayed there particularly long, and I did wonder occasionally if they had felt as unwelcome as I did. It was only a few years ago, when the house had been empty for a few months, that I made up my mind to get shot of it altogether. With the exception of a couple of paintings of sentimental value, which I thought I'd stored in the roof space, I couldn't have cared less what happened to any of the contents. I was checking property prices on an estate agent's site, comparing houses of similar age and style when I spotted it. My maternal grandparents' house was for sale. I immediately made an appointment to view it. I was never going to bed, of course. Too many years had passed and I certainly wasn't in the market for a new home. But I had to feel it one more time, as if the very building itself had a heartbeat. When I pulled up outside, I could see that the house was decorated beautifully for Christmas. I paid great attention and interest as the owner showed me around. I didn't want them to guess that I was a fraud, but after the tour was over, I asked if I might look around myself. I paused in each of the room for moments only, shrouded in memories. I felt surrounded by comfort and love. I wondered if anything remained of my lovely family, perhaps some lonely relic languishing in the attic or a black and white photograph jammed down the back of a skirting board. I thanked the owner and departed, and before I really knew what I was doing, I felt myself being drawn towards the house on the other side of the carriageway. I had avoided it for years by then, but I had an overwhelming urge to get the little I wanted from the house and wash my hands of it forever. I parked outside on the road and sat there for a while, gazing into the dark, undecorated windows. The house was empty, unloved, forgotten. I ventured up onto the path and pressed the front door open with difficulty as it was partially jammed with an avalanche of post. The familiar smell hit me first, an undistinguishable scent that was unmistakably my grandparents. I hadn't noticed it in years. Feeling vulnerable for entering an empty house alone in the dark, I hesitantly checked the downstairs rooms before moving upstairs and pulling the Slingsbury door from the attic. I had a quick glance in the bedrooms and then tried to ignore my unease as I climbed the ladder into the roof void. I'd been up there only once or twice in my occupancy and I remembered my need to be cautious. It had never been floored, which meant that items could only be accessed by walking from beam to beam with the precision of a gymnast. I marvelled at how much disused clutter can accumulate in a lifetime. Crockery and glasses of all shapes and sizes were boxed up beside brasses and framed prints by Constable and Gainsborough. Momentarily, I lost my balance and felt my foot connect with something under the insulation. I peeled it back to find a cardboard box sealed with parcel tape. Curious, I removed my car case from my pocket and ripped it open. What lay inside, wrapped in fat quarters of fabric, was a collection of things made by a child, catalogued in order of date. I could see as the pieces became more intricate and detailed, the transition from childhood and adulthood that they bore a signature, which I had instantly known to be my father's. The writing on the back of the drawings, paintings and carvings, my grandmother's copper plate. I couldn't quite fathom why she had taken so much time to store and document the makings of a child that she hadn't shown the slightest bit of interest in. I couldn't find what I was looking for and suddenly felt an overwhelming need to leave. I descended the ladder and the stairs, switching off all the lights as I went. When I reached the front door, something made me pause and look towards the cloakroom. 
Nothing was ever stored in there except an old Singer sewing machine, which was missing a treadle. With one swift movement, I opened the door and there, nestled under the sewing machine, I found the paintings, again bearing my father's signature. I gathered them up without a backward glance and made off. Safely in the car, I knew that was the last time I would ever set foot in that house. But as I clipped my seatbelt in, my eye was drawn towards the landing window where I could have sworn I saw a tall, thin, dark figure set back very slightly from the pane. As I gazed transfixed, the figure gave me what could only be described as a slow motion wave and then was gone. And so was I. Of course, I knew who it was, the enduring spirit of a woman turned to stone, but I can never be sure if she was giving me a sorrowful wave of goodbye or a wicked wave of good riddance, or if she was ever even there at all. Uh, thanks, Karen, so very much. It's interesting that the few stories we've had featuring ghosts have all had difficult family relationships at the heart of them. That was brilliant. And if it gave you a chill, keep listening, because we're going to finish with something that will warm you up. And that is it from me for now. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, Instagram. Check out the website and get in touch. We love hearing from you. The podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed, and published by Paul Doran. So you can blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But as the darker evenings draw in, I leave you with a wonderful warming recipe from Podrick. Yes, these are the conversations we have before 10 by 9 begins. Bye-bye for now. So what is in this magical soup? So I'd bought um, gorgeous spring onions and amazing homegrown garlic and then Swiss rainbow chard and some really lightly sliced buds, like very thinly sliced and spinach, whole load of spinach and um, peppers. But anyway, so that, all that's in it. And then just at the end, as in just before you eat it, I put in huge handfuls of peas and they just defrost immediately Mm -hmm. but they still taste like they're just fresh because they've got a little bite you know they haven't been boiled basically and i put a bit of chili a tiny bit of chili and chicken stock and it's very tasty